We are in our second week of a sermon series that we do probably every three or four years called Songs of the Savior. And what we're doing in this sermon series is we take a a common Christmas hymn or Christmas carol and we just use it as a starting point to look at and go, okay, what, what themes or what truths did the hymn writer capture in this well-known carol or this well-known Christmas song? And, and where in Scripture do we find those truths? And so that's kind of uh, been a series we've done now for a little while. So last week we did Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and Jeff did that and took a look at that, uh, that Christmas carol. Today we're going to be doing a uh, very famous Christmas carol called O, o Holy Night, O Holy Night. And what we're going to do is in a minute, Jordan's going to come up and he's going to sing just a little bit of O Holy Night, and then we're going to jump into it. But before we begin, let me take a moment and let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, this season. We thank you for Advent. We thank you that for a moment we can pause and we can remember the coming of your son Jesus 2,000 years ago. Father, I thank you that for a season we can take the time to look forward when your son Jesus will come again in victory to redeem and to rescue uh, those who are in the grave, Father, those who have wandered from you but are trusting in you. Father, I pray this morning that as we worship you, I pray that uh, as we listen to the words of Scripture read and sing these songs, Father, that we might have a life-changing encounter with you, the living God. Father, we pray all these things now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. A few songs capture sort of that feeling of Christmas like Oh Holy Night. Makes you kind of want to drink some hot chocolate and uh, snuggle up next to the fire. Some of you in this room uh, remember watching this thing called television. There were these regular channels. This was about 20 years ago. One of those channels was VH1. It was a competitor to MTV. And VH1 had a uh, program called Behind the Music. Does anybody remember this, uh, this television show called Behind the Music? What it would do is uh, the show would do just what its name described. Uh, Behind the music chronicled the stories behind certain songs and behind certain bands. And it was really a tremendous success. People loved hearing the backstories of their favorite music and their favorite bands. Today we're going to do a little behind the music for O Holy Night, which Jordan just played. In 1843, there was a town in southern France uh, the town was called Roquemore. I looked it up this morning to make sure my pronunciation was right. I'm not sure if Fabrice is here this morning. He is our, our resident French person. Uh, but he wanted to do, this priest wanted to do something special for the Christmas season. And so he reached out to a famous poet from the town. And uh, the, the poet's name was Placide Capot. And so he reached out to Placide, and he said, I want you to, to write a poem for Christmas this year. And so Capot, despite the fact that he was mostly irreligious, agreed. And Capot turned to the Bible to start delving in and to, in order to try to discern what he could about the Christmas story. Most of what we just sang, or what Jordan just sang, in the words of O Holy Night, is penned after his exploration into the Scriptures and particularly his, his uh, exploration into this incarnation of Jesus coming to earth 2,000 years ago. Capot was so pleased with the, how the poem turned out that he thought it needed to be put to music, and so he reached out to his friend, the world-famous composer Adolf Adam. And so Adam agreed to write the music for O Holy Night, and shortly thereafter it was performed by a famous opera singer named Emily Laurie. O Holy Night, this song quickly became one of the most beloved hymns in all of France until the church found out 
that it had been written by somebody who was irreligious and somebody who was Jewish. And so it was quickly banned, again, because of the church. Now, the notable thing is that the entire Christmas story, if you look in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Christmas story is equally, if not more, ironic. Jesus, God in the flesh, wasn't born into a royal Jewish family, but rather was born in anonymity to a poor teenage couple from absolutely nowhere. The God-man wasn't born in a palace nursery. He was born surrounded by barnyard animals and laid in a feeding trough. The Messiah's birth was not heralded by royal dignitaries, but instead by outcast shepherds. Jesus' arrival wasn't celebrated by the Jewish religious elite, but rather by Iranian astrologers. Not astronomers, astrologers. In light of that, it seems to me that a song written by a couple of non-Christian artists makes perfect sense after all. In the same way that we have much to learn from Mary, as we have much to learn from the shepherds and from the wise men, we also have a few things to learn about the Christmas story from Capot and Adam. The question is, what did they get right in the writing of O Holy Night? Let's take a quick look. The first thing they get right is that the arrival of Jesus is a reminder of humanity's worth. Let me say that one more time. The arrival of Jesus is a reminder of humanity's worth. I'm going to read uh, the first verse. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. The King of kings lay thus in lowly manger in all our trials born to be our friend. So some psychologists uh, have used two closely related terms to, our des- to describe our perception of ourselves and how it's largely determined through external factors. One word they often use is affirmation. Affirmation is where you're loved or you're approved of because of what you do, so it's based upon what you do. Validation, on the other hand, is a word used to describe when you are loved or approved, not for what you do, but for who you are. So affirmation, what you do, validation, who you are. We were affirmed for making good grades. We're affirmed for doing a good job at work, or we're affirmed for creating a wonderful home for our children. Many of us are affirmed for accomplishments in sports. However, if your self-worth and self-perception is based upon your accomplishments, then ultimately you're only as good as your last performance. If you fail a test, you may feel like a failure. Lose that match and you may feel like a loser. Affirmation is a perfectly good gift, but it cannot be the final litmus test for our self-worth. This is where validation then comes in. Most psychologists argue that validation is designed to come primarily through our parents when we are young, even before we're capable of doing anything to earn their praise. We are loved because we are a daughter. We are loved because we are a son. We are approved of because we are a child. I often use the example of my own children when I talk about this idea of validation. There are lots of 19-year-old girls in the world. Many of them are better soccer players than my daughter may. Many of them are better students than my daughter may. Many of them are better artists than my daughter may, but none of them is my daughter. I love her because of who she is, not because of what she does. That's validation. Unfortunately, Because of the way that sin has introduced corruption into humanity, that is, the brokenness of the world, the brokenness of our parents and our own psychological brokenness, our self-perception, our view of ourselves is always skewed. 
Some of us struggle with pride. We won't, don't, or can't see the ways in which we are broken. Prideful people are likely to believe that they're accepted by God, not because of who they are, but rather because of what they do. It's always a comparison game. They're tempted to look down on people whose performance doesn't measure up to their own. These people are ultimately like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable that he tells in Luke 18. I'm going to read verses 9 through 11. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, that's sort of the religious elite person, and the other a tax collector, people would have hated them. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, right? Clearly, this Pharisee was viewing himself and his self-worth based upon his performance about what he was doing rather than who he was. On the other end of the self-perception continuum are self-loathers and neurotics. They know that their performance doesn't measure up to their own standards, much less to God's standards. They're fully aware of their failures, and those failures create a cacophony of condemning voices inside their heads. They don't believe they're worthy of love or acceptance for any reason. This is where Capot gets it right, however. Listen to the end of the first verse. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he, that is Jesus, appeared and the soul felt its worth. How much do you matter to God? So much that he would send his son into the world to rescue you, to die for you. Remember the words of John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And notice that God's redemption mission wasn't dependent upon our performance, but was in spite of it. In fact, you, just like the rest of the world, lay in sin and error pining, not measuring up at all. Capot is right. Paul, again, tells us in Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait till we got our lives together. He came long before we were made right. God's pursuit of you through Jesus isn't because of what you've done. Rather, it's because of who you are. You're being created in the very image of God. Therefore, you have infinite value and infinite worth because you're made in his image. In the words of Max Lucado, if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. God loves you because you're a child made in his image. Oh, Holy Night is a reminder of just how much we are worth to him. What else does this carol have to teach us? This carol also has to teach us that the arrival of Jesus is a reminder of the gospel. Oh, Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary soul rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. This verse captures a key part of the human predicament as well as its solution. So what is the human predicament? It's what we, it's what the Bible calls sin and Capot identifies it. And again, I think he's correct. In Romans 3, Paul tells us, for all, that is everyone, 
have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, the Bible uses several different words to add color to our understanding of sin. One word means to miss the mark, to miss the mark. My guess is that we've all experienced missing the mark at one time or another. On Tuesday, I watched the quarterfinals of the World Cup, which pitted Spain against Morocco. Morocco was a massive underdog, and somehow they managed to stay in the game all the way through 90 minutes of regulation, through 30 minutes of uh, overtime, until finally it went to what's called a penalty kick shootout. Some of you guys might be aware of what that is. And in the penalty kick shootout, Spain lost. And what was amazing is they didn't just lose, but they missed every single penalty kick they took. The Spanish players missed them all. And it's not that they weren't trying. They absolutely were trying. They just missed. The same thing happens in marriage. You don't intend to miss your spouse's heart, but you do anyway. It happens in parenting as well. You desperately want to love your children, but inevitably you will miss the mark. The same thing happens with God's standard of righteousness. Sometimes, despite our best efforts, we fail to measure up. We miss the mark. Another word the Bible uses to add color to this concept of sin is is the word transgress. This word means that there's a law or there's a rule or that there's a standard which we cross over. Like missing the mark, it can be by accident or it can be on purpose. Think about the speed limit, for example. Sometimes you just aren't paying attention You end up doing 42 and a 35, you get pulled over and you are given a ticket. It was a total accident, but you're guilty nevertheless. Sometimes you're late for work and you intentionally drive over the speed limit. You knowingly transgress the law. Similarly with God's law, we will often transgress. We gossip because it just feels so good to share that secret and to gain some relational connection with someone else. Or maybe someone will give in to lust because they tell themselves it's, it's just not going to hurt anybody or it's not that big of a deal. Some of us will lie because we deeply desire to be accepted or because we deeply fear someone's displeasure or rejection. I could go into other nuances around this concept of sin, but the point is that at some point we become aware that we've missed the mark. At some point we become aware that we've transgressed. At some point We become aware that we haven't done it accidentally, but lots of times we've done it on purpose. We have rebelled, but Jesus' arrival at Christmas is a reminder that forgiveness is freely offered. That's exactly what the angel told Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to embrace Mary as your wife, for the one conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So the arrival of Jesus reminds us of just how valuable we are to God. The arrival of Jesus also reminds us of just how much we need the good news and the forgiveness that is offered to us in Jesus. What else do we learn from this song, O Holy Night? We also learn that the arrival of Jesus is a reminder that we are to be peacemakers. Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. Being a peacemaker is very different than being a peacekeeper. Let me say that one more time. Being a peacemaker is very different than being a peacekeeper. 
A peacekeeper is someone who will usually avoid conflict if possible. A peacemaker, on the other hand, is someone who knows that conflict is inevitable in the pursuit of peace. With the exception of Ye, uh, who was formerly known as Kanye West, the college kids aren't here this morning, so eight of you may know who that is. There seems to be little disagreement um, that Hitler was a murderous dictator. That's probably about 100% in here. In 1933, as Hitler came to power in Germany, he assassinated his political opponents on both the right and the left. And then from 1934 to 1938, Hitler systematically took control of all social, cultural, and political outlets. In other words, he controlled the narrative by shutting down free speech. Beginning in 1935, Hitler passed a law stripping Jews of their legal status in Germany. In a two-day period of time, uh, in 1938, Hitler enacted what is known as Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass, in which 1,000 synagogues were burned across Germany. 7,500 Jewish homes and businesses were destroyed, and tens of thousands of Jewish men and boys were arrested and imprisoned in concentration camps. Of course, by the end of the war, six million European Jews had been murdered. Six million Jews. The Encyclopedia Britannica estimates that as many as 50 million people were killed in World War II alone. 50 million people. What do you think was needed in 1945? A peacekeeper or a peacemaker? In the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he gave what most of us know as the Sermon on the Mount. He began his extended lecture to a large and ideologically diverse crowd by issuing a list of very countercultural values that we have often called the Beatitudes or the Blessings. One of these is found in verse 9 of Matthew 5, and it's this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Through his ministry over the next three years, Jesus modeled each of the values and the Beatitudes. He was pure in heart. He was merciful. He was meek. That means he could have used his power to dominate and to control, but he didn't. And of course, Jesus was a peacemaker. He challenged the powerful religious elite and sought to end their oppression of common people by accurately revealing the heart of his Father to those people. He also did this by overturning tables in the temple and by calling Pharisees sons of their father, the devil. Jesus didn't just challenge the religious elite, however. He also challenged those who were caught up in the bondage of their own sin. He sought to free them from the oppression of self-destructive behaviors by calling them to rest in the gospel, but also warning them of the consequences of not turning from their sin. If you remember, Jesus told the lame man that he healed, see, you're well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. If we're followers of Jesus, then we are called to be peacemakers as well. We're to remind people of the offer of peace with God through Jesus. Listen to the words of 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. By the way, that means telling people the bad news of their sin and brokenness as well as the good news of God's offer of forgiveness. 
We're not only to be spiritual peacemakers, however, we're to be relational peacemakers as well. In Matthew 5, Jesus said the following, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then then come and offer your gift. Think about that for just a second. He doesn't say if you have something against someone else, go and make peace, although that's also true. He says if you know that someone has a problem with you, go and do your best to be reconciled. The onus for peacemaking is on us. Similarly, in 2 Corinthians 13, Paul writes, Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Again, in Romans 12, Paul writes, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position, do not be conceited, do not repay anyone evil for evil, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone, if it is possible, and this is a a key phrase, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. It's not always possible, but as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Jesus' arrival 2,000 years ago is a reminder that we are called to be people of peace. So, Jesus' arrival 2,000 years ago reminds us of our worth to God. Why else would he have sent his only son? Jesus' arrival is also a reminder of the gospel. We needed to be rescued. We needed to be forgiven. That's why Jesus came. And then finally, Jesus' arrival reminds us that we, too, are called to be peacemakers. So what do we do with all of this? Capote's recommendation is that we rejoice. That's how he ends his carol. Listen once more to the words of O Holy Night. A thrill of hope, the weary soul rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn, sweet hymns of joy in grateful chorus raise we. Let all within us praise his holy name. Let's join together now in rejoicing and praising the holy name of Jesus. But before we do, let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, we thank you that through the arrival of your son Jesus, there are truths that we find in scripture, Father, that that we actually are worth more than most of us probably realize because we are created in your image, Father, and you've adopted us as your daughters and sons. Father, the arrival of your son Jesus is also a reminder of the gospel that we are loved not because of what we do, but because of who we are. And then finally, Father, this arrival of your son Jesus is a reminder that in the same way that your son Jesus came to make peace between humans and between you, Father, we too are to follow in the footsteps of your son, and we are called to be peacemakers as well, Father. We pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.